This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of the best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Thambergus. And I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. As always, I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making Veritas possible. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to all segments of tonight's interview, which is also presented inside Veritas TV on video. Subscribe not because you want to believe, but because you want to know. And don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, USB drives with all our seasons, including bonus material, and everything else we have to offer. As I said last week, like us on Facebook and visit the page frequently. It is updated on a daily basis with news you won't get in the mainstream. And to get in touch with us for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower. There's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. A few days ago, you listened or watched a wonderful interview with Grant Cameron, in which he explores the UFO consciousness connection. Tonight, you will hear from another favorite Veritas veteran, Richard Dolan. This interview, like Cameron's, was filmed at the 2013 International UFO Congress, Again, it's available on video inside Veritas TV. Dolan is known for his impeccable research into UFOs and the national security state. Recently, he co-wrote A.D. 
After Disclosure, A People's Guide to Life After Contact. It seems that many researchers are now transitioning into what seems to be unavoidable, the reality of extraterrestrial life. During this interview, we discussed Dolan's new work, a new book that should be available sometime in late April or early May 2013, titled UFOs for the 21st Century Mind. Recent polls indicate that most of the population believes in extraterrestrial life, but with talk of global financial collapse, terrorism, war, and everything else that plagues our society, how relevant are UFOs in the 21st century? How deep is human interaction with technology? Are we entering a new world of singularity and transhumanism? How long can we stand government runaway secrecy? And can we accept there is a breakaway civilization? For this and much more, Richard Doland, right now on Veritas. This is Matt Stein, author of When Disaster Strikes and When Technology Fails, and you're listening to Veritas. This is Mel Fabregas from Veritas, Veritas TV, Veritas Radio. I'm here with my other friend, Richard Dolan. This morning I interviewed another great researcher, Grant Cameron from Canada. Now we move to the United States. And if you don't know who Richard Dolan is, you've been living under a rock for the past, you know, decade or two. So Richard, welcome to Veritas once again. How are you? I'm Mel. I'm always happy to be on your show. Great. Thank you. And... You have a new book that's coming out in the next couple of months. I'm always interested in knowing what Richard Dolan is researching because your research is is basically stellar and you dot all your I's and cross all your T's. So what are you working on? Yeah, this is a new, it's actually a very exciting book for me. I'm calling it UFOs for the 21st Century Mind. Uh, I think of it as a, a new introduction to the entire field, but a sophisticated introduction. This is not a a low-level intro. Uh, It is something, though, that I think is uh, I've designed it to take the entire field of UFOs and give it a very fresh approach, a very modern modern look, so that it doesn't feel like it's 1985. Every time you crack open some UFO book, I feel like it... Some of them, to me, feel like they're obsolete the moment they become, you know, in print. Uh, Maybe that's just me. So the whole book came out of an idea. I was, I was approached a little over a year ago by an online university called the International Metaphysical University. And really what they were doing is creating a series of courses on uh, topics that were not the types of topics, topics you get at an ordinary university. So uh, courses in higher consciousness and, uh, and other things like that. And then they were starting up a ufology department. The problem was I had no UFO courses, so they approached me with the idea of whether I would want to create an introduction to ufology course for this online school. And I thought and uh, decided, yes, I I actually would like to do it because it will give me an opportunity to take a few steps back from this entire field and look at the whole big picture and create what I think, in my opinion, is the best complete true introduction to this entire field. And uh, 
And I did, I created the lecture series for them, and I'm now turning that lecture series into this book, which is UFOs of the 21st Century Mind. Um, and really what I try to do is I, I look at everything. So there's the history, which I've, that's really been my entry into the U, field of UFO studies as a historian. Uh, in this case, though, I've got chapters dealing with the whole gamut of the history of sightings from ancient right up until today. Uh, but there's a lot of philosophy in this book. There's a, a great deal of science in this book. There's a great deal of political analysis at, at the, the shallow and deep levels in this book. There's a great deal of uh, discussion on how we are best able to understand UFOs in an era of YouTube and Facebook, in an era of copy-and-paste journalism, where all of the latest little rumors get, you know, spread like wildfire before you know what's even happened. Um, and then there's a chapter, I mentioned science, but the, when you think about science and UFOs, this is something I think that does not get enough attention. There's so many revolutionary scientific aspects of the UFO phenomenon, from something as simple as propulsion technology, how do these objects move from hovering, loitering indefinitely to instant acceleration, Right? What, what allows them to do that? What's the science behind it? I try to explore this. To uh, issues of space-time itself, to issues of consciousness, which has, I think, uh, become a very important element for uh, many researchers in the whole topic of UFOs. And these are things that I explore. Uh, and then I also take a look at uh, something that I wrote about in my previous book, AD After Disclosure, which is just dealing with all of the implications of the end, the probable end of UFO secrecy at some point in the future and how that will affect us. All of these things are part of what I would call like the new ufology. All right. In other words, ufology is a little bit more than, uh, you know, studying, uh, asking a witness, how far, if you hold your fingers out at arm's length, was the object as large as a nickel or a quarter? I mean, that's part of it, but there's much more here than studying reports of unidentified flying objects. Uh, you know, a lot of the book deals with our own encounters with these other beings, whoever and whatever they are. That's essentially where the rubber meets the road and what is going on with that. So all of these things, to me, comprise important aspects of the entire field of UFOs. And what I have tried to do is, in about 300 pages, in like one nice size book, give a... Give a new reader or an experienced reader, I think a fresh, kind of a cutting edge introduction to this entire topic in a way that will allow us to, to think about it, I think, in a logical, rational way, but in a creative way so that we actually can make some headway. And by the way, when you and I graduated from, from college, we didn't have, speaking of copy and paste culture, we didn't have Wikipedia, no. or we, we have Google. So. But you have been always looking at the history of the UFO phenomenon. Then you transition to more of projection, proje uh, the projections of what a world would look like after yes. this closure. What changed you? That transformation into looking at the, the, the how the world would look like, what changed you? Well, yeah, I, a lot of people, because I entered this field as a historian, and that's really how everyone got to know me. So they thought, well, that's really what this guy does. And really, that's never been the only thing that I've been about. Uh, when I was a student in college, I had two majors. One was history, one was literature. I had a minor as well. It was philosophy. 
As I've always been like this. And uh, when I look at the field of ufology, I have to be creative or I would just wither and die. I have to look at it in an original way. So I, I look at it historically. But when I did a book like AD After Disclosure, that was a very speculative piece about the future. And it was a joy to write that book, by the way. Um, you know, it was a different type of endeavor than going through archives, checking, fact-checking this and that. We did a lot of fact-checking, actually, in AD After Disclosure, but it was, a, it was different. Uh, a lot of it was trying to envision how things would turn out after UFO secrecy were to end. And our conclusion, by the way, was that this promises to be a very, very radical, I would say revolutionary series of changes, and that probably, more than anything else, explains why there's secrecy about it because ending the secrecy really will transform our world. Uh, but yeah, that was a very, uh, that was an uh, exercise in being a visionary, and it was a great thing to do. This book as well is, I think, a creative endeavor. It's, it's, it's as much a personal attempt as it is for me to just write a book for people. That is for me to try to tell myself, to figure out for myself what I think about this incredible greatest of all mysteries, which is that of UFOs. Um, and really, um, I think it's hard to uh, to describe this book because it is a kind of fresh introduction. So there's like a little bit of everything in it. But I do have uh, certain things that I think are new and unusual that have not been discussed in this book. Uh, one thing is, is simply, I talked about, you know, the era that we now live in, the era of Facebook and YouTube and I mean, think about how different it is than, than it was 50 years ago or even 30 years ago where the biggest problem that people had back then was getting access to data, getting actual sighting reports. Really, how, how were people able to do that? It was not easy to get collections of UFO sightings. Now, it's exactly the opposite. Now, if you want to find even UFO video, that used to be rare. Now, UFO video, there's hundreds of alleged UFO videos every year to say nothing of more than 10,000 sighting reports per year in North America alone from just the two major websites. That is the MUFON database and the National UFO Reporting Center. If you take all of those sightings and add them up, it's over 10,000 a year. Can you imagine? Now, isn't this a <clears throat> double-edged sword? I remember in the mid-80s to, to uh, late-80s with my Commodore 64, Commodore 128, going through the PBS systems. Yes. This was to me, I felt like I was hacking into the government at, at, at times. I remember that as well, and I felt the same way. So it was, uh, it was really a great experience. And then we have the advent of the Internet. Isn't this a double-edged sword? Because now we have Photoshop. Now we have all these, exactly. these applications that can, right. that can emulate what Hollywood is doing. And it's very, you can't even discern sometimes what's reality from fiction. Well, right. This is, this, this is uh, an important theme in, in this section of the book where I'm talking about the challenges that we face every single day when we're dealing with UFO data. I mean, for myself, I'm sure for you, Mel, I get emails probably every day from people asking me, Rich, what do you think about this photograph? What do you think about that video? What do you think about this claim? And the fact is, on the, I don't know any better than they do when they're writing to me most of the time. But, but because I'm, I'm constantly being asked to comment on photographs and videos, I, I have learned some very good research techniques 
basic computer web searches that I think many people are still to this day not aware of. And I try to point this out. I mean, a couple of examples I'll just tell you is one, um, when you're looking up a, an image, I think many people are not aware of, of uh, reverse image searches. It's only been about less than two years that Google has offered reverse image searches in its search engine. And basically what that means is it's just simply taking an image from your files, from your file system, you drag it into their search bar for Google image search. And incredibly what it will do is it will search throughout the web for all examples of that image. Wherever that image exists on the web, that search will find it. By the image, not by the text? Correct. Wow. That's called reverse image search. See, now, a lot of people still don't know it. I use it frequently. I, almost, I would almost say daily, certainly weekly, multiple times every week when I'm searching out an image. A lot of times I just find it very useful to know who else has that image. And then what you can do is even, and this is really a good research tool, is you search by date. And if you go into, uh, you can do reverse image searches or you can do search by date. For example, if there is a particular claim um, that's become a meme or a theme in, in UFO research and you want to find out the first instance of that, wh where did it originate? You're able to do it through uh, the Google search engine. If you go into advanced tools, it's right up there at the top and you, you can see search by date and you can go back as far in the calendar as you want, basically into the early 1990s, and you can find, you literally can find the first instance in which a piece of information has made it to the web. And by knowing that, you're actually able to trace the lineage of that idea on the web. And to know the origin, many times will give you a very good idea of how legitimate it is or not. So you can tell if it's been doctored. Looking at yes, the absolutely. And all of these tools are available to us. One, one thing that I'm telling people in this book is because we're flooded with all of these, all of this data, all of these claims, we really have got to step our own game up as researchers. And that means everybody. That means you who's watching. It's not, it's not enough to just write to some researcher who's some, you know, far away distant expert in your mind who says, well, if this expert says it, then it must be true. That's not really good enough. Because really all that we are, are people doing our best on our own time to figure this stuff out. And what really I think is going to be necessary moving forward in this field is for people who care about this topic to become better researchers. And that means <clears throat> not accepting every claim at face value. It means not getting worked up and excited over the latest claim, the latest prediction, the latest whatever. Uh, rather, take a little bit of time, do a little bit of research, and hunt down uh, the origin of these things. The other thing is, even if we don't want to do it ourselves, uh, there's always someone out there who has probably done the legwork. When someone asks me a, uh, to check out a video on YouTube, uh, one thing I will always do after I watch the video is I will go through the YouTube comments that are right there. I mean, nine times out of ten, there's going to be a couple of people or at least one person who really has something insightful uh, and useful to say about it. Th these people go through the effort to do some research and put it out there. The least we can do is read what they have to say. 
and use our own judgment in deciding what we think of it. Uh, but really, one of the important things that, that I would say is that we, we need to have an open mind about this topic because there's something very, very important going on. But we also really need to keep our heads firmly on our shoulders. And, you know, think of it. We've just gone through the whole year of 2012. We just went through it. We just went through basically 10 years or more of predictions by various people in this field about what was going to happen, what was supposed to happen on December 21st, 2012. And now maybe some of us had an unusual day or not, but as a civilization, we certainly didn't have anything that was noticeable that anyone passed through. Uh, no one had an ascension, nor did we have an apocalypse. And I think it's instructive. And this is something that I mentioned in this book. The whole process of, of this buildup, this hype, um, by a lot of people in the field who really had no business making these types of predictions, but they did anyway. And then people who really had no business believing these predictions, but they did anyway. I think there's a lesson here. And the lesson is, let's be very careful about predictions. Let's also be very careful about the, uh, the sources and the information that's coming our way. We're in, we're in an era where everything is, is so uncertain. People don't want uncertainty. They want, they want hope. They want something that's going to keep them going. But if it comes at the cost of living in a delusion, is it worth it? It isn't for me. And uh, I just feel that we're all better served by a calm, rational approach to this very, very great mystery, which is going to rock our world anyway. We don't really need to to help it along by uh, spinning fantasy, you know. And for the folks who write to us, to, to, to Richard or, or to me with, with pictures or videos, just because we don't jump, jump up and down and we may just find that it was a hoax, that doesn't mean that we're debunkers. We are just uh, right. what we do. We have to be skeptical. We keep an open mind, but we have to be skeptical because otherwise then we have the gullibles. Also, we have the, the, the phenomenon of the escapism. A lot of people want to escape their reality and they want to just concoct these, these, these stories and to escape into that. Do you see right. that in what you do and in the interactions you have with your, your readers? Absolutely, yes. And in fact, the very first chapter of this book is all about, uh, it's really a philosophical introduction to UFOs. And I try to remind people that the fact is most unusual things we see in the sky really are explainable. They mean they really truly are conventional or explainable in one way or another. That's actually the case. You know, it's a truism that 90% of all unidentified objects in the sky are explainable in one way or another. And it's a truism because basically it's true. So uh, I do actually spend a lot of time in the beginning of this book. It almost sounds, it's not boring, believe me. A lot of these other books really are boring. I try to make it very interesting. But essentially I go through a lot of the things that can confuse us into thinking that we're seeing UFOs. And today, more than ever, more than ever, we've got technologies out there that really are pretty far out. We're actually making our own UFOs. You could buy off the shelf a remotely operated vehicle, put LED lights on it, or it can come with LED lights, and you can actually now buy a bunch of these. It's possible, and you can have them remotely controlled in unison 
lift them up at night and guess what? They would look pretty, pretty far out and they would look like UFOs to a lot of people. Um, so I, I think that was your question, Mel, but basically you wanted to know, do I, I'm often finding myself in a position of saying, okay, let's just calm down. Right. About five years ago, I bet you remember this, there was a really cool video on YouTube of a UFO over Haiti. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So this was in, I think, 2007. The software company. Is that who made it? The software company made it. It went viral. And that's how they felt that they did the right thing. Because they fooled the people. Well, it was a great video. And I remember I was at a MUFON conference. I had just finished giving a lecture and I was in some lobby area. And this guy runs up to me with his laptop. Mr. Dolan, you've got to look at this. This is unbelievable. This is proof right here. I said, well, let's take a look at it. And I watched the video. And it's if you haven't seen it, you can look up Haiti UFO. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very dramatic looking. You see this object coming over some trees. It makes kind of a humming noise and it takes off. It's, it looks realistic. And uh, my initial thought was, wow, I don't know. I mean, if this is real, this is pretty interesting. And he said, what do you mean if it's real? I said, well, I really don't know. This is brand new. Sure enough, two days later, three days later, it didn't take long. Some smart guy did a video analysis and proved, absolutely proved, without a shadow of a doubt, that this was a hoax video. And he did it by uh, an analysis of the trees, if I'm not mistaken. Point is this. Getting worked up. You know, this is the long history of UFOs. This is one thing that I really learned in, in researching the history, is that in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, all the way through, people were always convinced that their era was the one where it was all going to happen. We were going to end the secrecy, or this was the case that was going to break it wide open. And, uh, and it just didn't happen. It doesn't mean that it won't happen, but I just think, let's, again, take the long view of this and realize that um, maybe, just maybe, that the case we're sitting on really isn't all that the way we think it is. We need some time to reflect and really to understand this properly. Do you get a lot of people who become offended? For example, I remember at the time people bringing that video up to me. And, of course, I'm skeptical. I can't see right. it. But I found out later that it was the software company. It's a software company that works for Hollywood. And they were producing this video to show the people how you at home could actually emulate what Hollywood does. And that, to me, that video was, to me, the precursor of what we see now. And when I say that it's a double-edged sword, it really is, because now, how do you right. really differentiate the truth from fiction? Well, it's very, very difficult. There was another excellent uh, UFO video that uh, was done out of London, I think two or three years ago, <clears throat> and it... <clears throat> <clears throat> Pardon me, I'm, my, I've been talking for two days solid here. Yes. And the voice is starting to go. It was a video done, I think, two years ago out of London. It was beautifully done. You see a lot of people in the streets pointing up or looking up. And and the guy with the camera then pans up to the sky and he's, you see these lights zipping across the sky into a cloud. And it's incredible. When I first saw that, I thought, this really might be, this might be real. This is incredible. However, it wasn't real. It was, it was a hoax. Um, the people who were pointing up were part of the production company. So they were like actors. And then there were just 
other people standing there looking up, thinking, what are they pointing at? Not seeing anything. Meanwhile, uh, after they took the, uh, the sky shots back to the studio, they inserted various UFOs. It was very clever. So your question is, it's the perfect question. How do we know? And the only, uh, what we've learned is that video and photographic evidence by themselves are not, they, they cannot be considered evidence. Case closed. They can only be considered evidence when you have corroborative witnesses. All right. Otherwise, a video by itself has become meaningless. Now, a video can be meaningful if you've got witnesses. If, if someone, in other words, has done a proper investigation, gotten witnesses who are able to support the video, you can at least begin to think that this is legit. But for the vast majority of YouTube videos that are out there, they fail that test. There are no corroborative witnesses. So essentially they're, they're dead in the water and they're just noise. They're just or, noise. Or you take, for example, the video that came from Israel, I believe about a year ago or two. Yeah. You see a couple of videos from different perspectives and it looks believable. But then there's a third video that seemed to be concocted. Right. That third video made the other two look like a host too. Yeah, I, I think that I agree with you. I was just talking the other day with an Israeli uh, UFO researcher who uh, has looked into this quite a lot. And I had the same opinion as you. I think there are, there are two videos shot from one angle that looked very realistic. There was another one of some uh, Russian-Israeli students that... Now, I didn't understand what they were saying, and, and that seemed interesting to me. And then there was a third one, which was of tourists mm -hmm. talking mostly in English. And uh, and you see the object come down and take off. And, and that was definitively shown to be a hoax because the, uh, the scene was all one big JPEG image. That's all it was. And uh, because nothing else moved. It was well done, but it was a hoax. So the question is... Was that a, some kind of debunking operation to discredit the other videos, or were all of them hoaxes? One of the things that this uh, UFO investigator pointed out to me is that there, he was not aware of any independent witnesses corroborating um, this UFO over the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. So, again, I have to, I have to agree, failing any of this type of witness testimony, what are we going to do with those Jerusalem images? Uh, he pointed out that the the Russian-Israeli students, that that whole video, in, in his opinion, seemed very um, not realistic. It almost seemed very forced. Now, I wasn't able to judge that because, again, I couldn't understand what they were saying. I'm just saying that uh, it only takes one hoax video to debunk the, the, the rest. That's why the sermon is so important. But yeah. you, like to you like to look at decades, 70s, 80s, 90s, yeah. a lot of your books. I remember in the 80s, I loved to read John Naisbitt's Megatrends, looking at the future and so on. The difference between the 80s and the 90s, 94, the first time I ever used the internet, it was to me, I was born again. And then the 2000s uh -huh. and now, right. where do you see this decade going? Oh, it's a, that's an incredible uh, thing to think about. And by the way, uh, I often play a little mental game in my mind, which is, uh, which 10-year period of the 20th century... Uh, saw the greatest amount of change. And I, I really would think about this. So uh, I think one of the decades that, that's right up there is from 1984 to 1994. And when you look at the world in 1984, it's pre-internet. It's still Cold War. It's pre-Gorbachev. 
the world is still like the old world. 1994, a mere 10 years later, end of the Soviet Union, we've got personal computers and we've got the birth really of the true internet. It's all like, what a massive change. So now looking forward, uh, this is something that I, I just love thinking about. Um, I've often wondered about uh, the future of computing. I think we all wonder about that. Um, the future of artificial intelligence has been on my mind quite a lot over the years. Uh, developments in um, things like, you know, solid state electronics in, in more and more products that allow for greater miniaturization of the products nanotechnology, and uh, this crazy thing called quantum computing, which promises to revolutionize our computing to a greater extent even than computers are over the Gutenberg printing press. And I can't even to this day completely understand all of the implications of what quantum computing will bring, but it seems to be on the way, very possibly. What we're moving into is a future that is truly going to be unrecognizable to what we have. And that's not even getting into developments in biotechnology, genetic mapping and genetic enhancement. We are literally 50 to 100 years from now, very possibly going to be living in a world where we can create artificial human beings, artificially enhanced human beings. And as crazy, as scary as that might sound, it's not going to stop it from happening. If the capabilities there someone's going to do it. And uh, that takes me into this idea of, you know, in that type of a world where there are computers that will have IQs of 500 or 1,000 and won't ever need to sleep and will seem conscious, and we ourselves may be increasingly connected to these computers, in that type of a world, are we really going to be in the dark ages and caveman times like we are today relating to UFOs? It seems to me that that knowledge will become common. Um, what will be the trigger to cause that to become common? I, I don't know what it will be, but I, I have to believe that between now and 50 years from now, when we have this completely transformed society, that something like the UFO cover-up will seem so obsolete, so old-fashioned, that everyone in the world will say, oh, God, I can't believe people ever, you know, doubted this, that the governments thought that they could hide this forever. What were they thinking? Uh, so somehow I think the secrecy is going to end on UFOs, and I do think that uh, technological developments are likely driving that change. Who do you see as the future of Gal well, or present? Galileo's, uh, you know, the, the, the heliocentric, uh, <clears throat> the, the flat earth, and so on. Of course, you always have to be criticized first, but then in the end we look back at those people right? and we realize they were the heroes. Who are the heroes of today that are pushing this forward that in the future will say they were right all along? Well, I mean, I like to think that some of the, the brave UFO researchers of today... Like you? Who, sure, why not? <laughs> I'll take it. I don't, I don't really know. I'm not thinking in those terms. I'm trying to think in terms of, uh, I'm just doing my job. That's really how I see it. I have no doubt that many of the things I believe about this phenomenon are probably wrong. Uh, that's just the way life is. Uh, but I do, I do have a belief that I'm onto something. I do have a belief that, 
that the truth is going to come out on this, and that I think there'll be a, a number of people, researchers, uh, on this topic, who I think, yes, the day will come when, when they are recognized for having been correct and having been ahead of the curve. Uh, it's not just UFOs. I think there are many, many uh, areas of our world today where there are people basically crying alone in the wilderness or, or close to it who are talking about things like the structure of power here on planet Earth as being as corrupt as it is. Guys like John Perkins, you know, who wrote Confessions of an Economic Hitman, totally. I think is one of these people, or my very good uh, uh, friend and associate, Catherine Austin Fitz, mm -hmm. who's talked along these lines. I think those people as well, in the future, we will get to a point where they are seen uh, for having done the great things that they've done. Especially, well, I don't, I don't want to take credit away from Catherine Austin Fitz, she's great, but John Perkins, who, who worked in the belly of the beast, and now it's coming out to explain how, how we need to change that, that posture. Yeah. Uh, but you, at one point, were a Rhodes Scholar. Rhodes Scholar finalist. A finalist. Didn't, finalist. didn't get the Rhodes. Well, but you were very close. And I was close. You decided to take this, the UFO community, and, and, and become a yeah, historian. I did. How did you feel about that? It was, it was the hardest decision of my life, uh, definitely up to that time and maybe even now when I look back. I was, I was great at what I did back in the academic world. I was, I was, I was a prize up-and-comer. Um, I got my master's degree at a very young age. I was a finalist for a Rhodes Scholarship. I did study at Oxford on a scholarship under a Rhodes Scholar who thought I was really cool. He said, I'd like you to apply for the Rhodes. I think you'll get it. And um, and all all through my formal studies, I was I was very good at it. I will say that. And um, my my years in the academic world, though, like when I look back, even then I, I knew I was not. I didn't quite fit. I didn't quite fit. I remember talking with a, a, a colleague of mine about like the kind of work that I wanted to do. I, I had to be twenty three years old. I was a kid, and I said, "Here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to do the kind of boring." academic monographs that everyone else is doing that no one reads that don't matter and don't change the world. And she said, what are you, insane? Just go out there and just do your job You'll get and you'll get a job, you'll get your paycheck and you'll be fine. And even then I just thought, I can't do that. I was never able to fit within that type of a system. So by my early 30s when I discovered the UFO topic, it took me that long. Uh, I, you know, up, up to that point, I was studying Harry Truman, the Cold War, the birth of the CIA, and all of that. Uh, and then I, I became not interested, not intrigued, but obsessed, obsessed by UFOs. I mean, it completely took over my life. I was 33 to 34 years of age when that whole change took place in me. 33. And no, sorry, 32 when I discovered UFOs. So I spent about a year just reading, like having to know everything I could. And the whole thing was, here's why I was obsessed by it. I wanted to know why, not were UFOs real, I wanted to know why did it appear that leading generals and admirals and, and intelligence directors seemed to take it seriously based on these documents that I had just discovered existed when in every academic book, in every academic history I'd ever read, UFOs were just a nonsensical, nonsensical topic. There's a discrepancy here, and I just wanted to know what is, 
what accounts for that discrepancy? It's very simple. So uh, I thought, well, I'll just dive into this for three months or so, and I'll get to the bottom of it, and then I'll move on with my life. And of course, that's when I just got sucked down the rabbit hole of, of this most amazing topic. Because here's the thing. Once I uh, discovered that this actually was something of interest to these people, then I thought, well, why the hell is this not in any history book? Because that's fascinating. In what dimension of reality is that not interesting? That you have a, that, you know, a guy who becomes a four-star general saying the phenomenon is not visionary, but uh, not, not fictitious, but real. And then he goes on describing in detail the characteristics of these flying saucers back in 1947. That's General Nathan Twining. I mean, that's an incredible document. Why is that not in the academic history books? So I just, one answer led to more questions, which led to more questions and more. And, and the next thing I knew, I was, I was in, and I ended up writing my first, uh, my first history, UFOs in the National Security State, which was really my attempt to answer that question that I'd asked. Why is this such a big deal? Well, that's why it's a big deal, because it's a real phenomenon that engaged the U.S. military and other militaries. They didn't seem to have control over it. It seemed to have extraordinary capabilities, far beyond anything that we were supposed to have. So yes, that's important. And uh, I didn't really feel a need to try to answer the question of UFOs in that book. I still really don't. But I think it's more than enough work for a day to prove, and that's, I think, what I did, to prove that the phenomenon was being taken seriously by people in very high places of the U.S. national security establishment. There are so many classes in, in, in academia today, and you, you can <clears throat> underwater basket weaving in academia, but yet we don't have a class that may pose the, the possibility of what you and Bryce Zabel wrote, excellent right. book after disclosure, to study the scenario formally. How would the oil industry, the pharmaceutical industry, governments, right. religion, how would they transition into the new world if this ever happens? Because all you have to do is look up at the stars and see the billions of stars, trillions of planets, to study this possibility. Why do you think this hasn't happened yet? Uh, ultimately, I mean, this is going to, I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but ultimately, because I think the UFO topic has important national security concerns, and I think from the very beginning, it was decided at the top that this was not going to be a topic that the general public was going to engage in, period. Okay? And I think the reasons initially were quite logical. They might almost seem altruistic. I mean, think about it in, from the point of view of uh, Harry Truman and let's say it's 1947. So let's just say Roswell happened, which I think it did. So let's, for the sake of argument, say it did. So I'm Truman and you're my top general and you come up to me and you say, sir, we've apparently recovered this technology that's not from the civilization. So I've got this, this is a heavy thing for me to deal with and will I tell the world? Well, Probably not. And the reason I wouldn't is simply because, A, I wouldn't want the Russians to get the technology, but also, this is all new to me. I don't know who these other beings are. Are they friendly? Are they hostile? I don't know. Um, how am I going to talk to the public about this when I myself don't really know the answer? Um, how do I know how well the <clears throat> current infrastructure will deal with it? We you know we may learn early on that these things don't use gasoline to go from point A to point B. So whatever they're using 
eventually, if we were to explore that, that would replace the petroleum industry, which in 1947 was the biggest industry, I think, in the world, certainly right up there. And it was a boom industry, by the way. Petroleum industry in the 40s and 50s was growth, growth, growth all the way. Jobs, booming economy, the automobile industry, all of this stuff was tied in together. The global economy needed oil, at least in the perception of those people running the economy. And so why would you want to rock the boat? Why? And in 1947, 1950, it seemed that there was enough oil to last for hundreds of years. And based on those levels of consumption, that would be true. Of course, this isn't 1950 anymore. But uh, at the time, it certainly seemed like this stuff was here for good. Why, you know, oil is great. Why do we want to risk it? Let's just take this very quietly. And the decision would be, let's study the problem. Let's not just uh, give this up to the world before we really know what we've got in our hands. So what would Truman do? He would gather his top people around him and he would say, let's, uh, let's put a game plan together here, guys. So your job will be to uh, oversee the transition of the technology to the private sector so we can make some innovations and money out of it. Your job will be to uh, make sure that uh, this doesn't get into the academic community too early or the scientific, so you're going to make sure you've got your guard dogs positioned in those fields to slap down anyone who um, becomes a little too interested. And your job will be to manage the press and the newspapers and and all of these things, all I think the logical things that he would have done, I think that's what he did. So if, to answer your question, why are UFOs not in the academic world? I think that's the origin of it. I really do. But see, here's the beauty of the academic culture is that it perpetuates itself. So once you start this cultural thing, uh, you don't really need, it's, it's somewhat self-regulating after a while, and it only requires a little bit of tweaking here and there. If, if, uh, if you were a graduate student today wanting to do a dissertation in UFOs, who would oversee your dissertation? Nobody. There'd be no one who's qualified because there's no one really who would go into the field to study it. They know nothing. And then if you were to do it, of course, you'd have to be afraid of the uh, censure and approbation you'd be getting from, uh, from your colleagues anyway. So there's no incentive for going into it. So it breeds a cycle of ignorance. And uh, and that's in something is, I mean, I came out of the field of history where it's much less dependent than the sciences on grant money and funding and so forth. Uh, in the scientific field, there's certainly not going to be any UFO studies if it's national security, because um, all the, almost all scientific funding comes from government or private industry sources anyway. And if if I'm a government person dispensing funds, for scientific research, I'm certainly not going to do it for UFOs if I know that this whole subject is, cl is classified anyway. I don't want the rest of the world getting into it. So the whole thing is just, it's a forbidden topic. Well, not only is it important for, for national security purposes, we don't want the Soviet Union at the time to find out, but also what about our own population when they realize that the these, these craft penetrated our quote-unquote sophisticated defense systems in the United right. States and there's nothing we can do about it. No, absolutely. You have the whole uh, prospect of public panic and if not panic, then 
a really enraged and engaged public on this matter. I mean, this would be, this would take over all of the public discussion and, and what could the presidential administration really do about it? Probably nothing. So there's really, there's nothing that they could gain out of it. And here's another thing. Um, once you allow the UFO topic to be legitimate, people will naturally want to know, well, how do I make my own flying saucer? I mean, let's face it. Wouldn't it be kind of nice to zip off to the other side of the world just like that? How would you be able to control your population if everyone literally was like the Jetsons and had their own flying saucer and could just go somewhere? It would be very difficult. Suddenly you're living in a completely fluid global world where um, control over your people, if that's what you want, which what government doesn't want that, becomes very difficult, very problematic. Uh, it's The whole thing just opens up a complete can of worms in uh, every way. This really was a lot of the things that we dealt with in AD after disclosure. Um, control over the population, the whole energy paradigm, it's, it's quite significant because then as now, petroleum is, is among the largest, um, it, it might be the largest industry in the world. It's certainly in the top one or two or three. And so replacing petroleum, even under the easiest and best circumstances, actually is not going to be an easy thing to do. You mentioned uh, Gutenberg Express. We have the internet now. There's a parallel there. When the internet came along, we had the oral tradition, Gutenberg Press. Now we have the internet. Like Ray, Ray Kurzweil, <clears throat> he talks about transhumanism, singularity, yeah. humans two point, human 2.0. Do you see a future in which we are, even right now, there's a psychological term, I forgot what it was, but our youth is so connected with their cell phones, with their Facebook, with their social networking, that when you separate this from them, it creates literally an addiction and depression. Yeah. Where do you see this going? It's it's It disturbs me, to be honest with you. I have two teenagers, and um, I think they're both well-adjusted kids, but <clears throat> I see in them and in their peers exactly the type of thing you're talking about. Uh, you know, Facebook is the, the, the latest addiction that the almost the entire industrial world, of, you know, the computer world has. Everyone's got Facebook. And uh, young people, I think, are more susceptible to it than, uh, than more mature people are, mainly because of their brain development. They're just, they're just not done. They're not ready. And they're more, uh, things affect them psychologically more than they affect older people. So they are more vulnerable. Um, yeah, all of these things that you raise, I mean, what, you know, what kind of, we're moving into a world where reality is becoming virtual, where increasingly we're really not requiring face-to-face, skin-to-skin human contact as much as we do have virtual friendships, virtual relationships. And what's, you know, as Kurzweil uh, mentions, and I certainly wonder about, uh, What will happen in an era where you can have a virtual, physical love relationship, and people have it already now online, but when it's it seems like a realistic 3D immersive reality, where you know your fantasy reality is going to be a hell of a lot more appealing and attractive than the dreary actual reality that you have, and what what I think you're going to see is a lot more people just opting out of the hard reality, and living their lives in some fantasy. You see it in a sense already with the gaming community. 
uh, people who spend hours every day, you know, doing online gaming. It's addictive. They're into it. It's a fun world for them to be in. Ultimately, uh, you know, and if you're a gamer listening, I don't mean to upset you, but ultimately it's a complete waste of your time. And I think you know that. It's not an actual life. And when, you know, if you've spent 20, 30 years doing this and now you're, you're dying on your deathbed, you're going to look back over your life and ask yourself, holy shit, have I just wasted my entire life? And the answer is, yes, you have. Yes, you have. And, and that's the danger that we're seeing. Um, this entire world, it's, and it's not just with computers, it's still with, uh, television. Um, I flew out here from the East Coast and, um, I could not, I could not bear to watch the programming that United had on the airplane. So I, I was reading a book and I had a movie on my, on my computer. I watched To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. So that's a classic movie that I love. And I'm glad that I watched it because I compared it with the, um, the movie that was being shown. And I, I didn't know the name of it. It was some new animated, like the world needs another new animated movie from Pixar. Well, I guess, I guess we do because now it's here and it looked like crap to me, but whatever. It was just stupid, trivial. And then once the movie ended, they put on these sitcoms, more trivial junk, really. It's what it is. And this is our culture. It's a culture in which you are encouraged from every single day of your life. You are encouraged to stop thinking independently altogether, forever. You are encouraged to be a passive recipient of a trivial, ridiculous entertainment culture that is designed solely to distract you from doing the one important thing that you can do in your life, which is to sit with your own thoughts and think about the world and your life. And that is the one thing that we are encouraged never to do. So uh, where am I going with this? Well, looking into the future, all I see is that this trend seems to be getting more and more and more to distract, to titillate, to uh, just keep you zoned out into some fantasy world that has nothing to do with the actual world in which you live, the actual reality that is that people are dealing with. And part of that reality has to do with these other beings and intelligences that are here interacting with us on planet Earth. And by the way, uh, it is a reality that for the few people who actually confront it and who actually are dealing with it, it's very difficult. It's almost traumatic. I've spoken to so many of these people who've had close encounters and experiences and it's very hard for them to process. So that's the reality. Meanwhile, what we're moving into is this kind of entertainment. This is the one thing that uh, makes me wonder about disclosure, actually. And I, I didn't really raise this much in the book AD after disclosure, but after I finished that book, I really started thinking about this. And if there is one thing that will stop disclosure, it's, it's this mass entertainment complex that surrounds everyone, that will just distract everyone so much that no one is just going to care enough. They'll be too busy trying to have sex with their favorite virtual movie star, 
or they'll be too busy playing the latest online war game and killing their enemy in a virtual reality scenario. They'll be too busy just doing whatever, frittering away their life into some fantasy rather than actually thinking about the far more interesting and rewarding issues that confront us existentially in this world today. Yeah, this is why I love to have these discussions with you because we step outside and we'll look at the big picture. You know, people, yeah. Some people criticize how the state of Washington and the state of Colorado have legalized marijuana, for example. But they're not looking into the gaming industry in which a lot of our youth is spending <laughs> not only hours but days. And if this is the society we're going to be bringing, talk about destruction, circus and bread back in the day of the yeah. Roman Empire. Now we have sports, we have reality TV shows, I call right. it the new pure American literature. That is the biggest worry that I have for the productive population. Absolutely. My God, they're worried about pot. That's like the best thing to happen in the last year. And it's not that uh, I encourage everyone to go out and smoke, smoke a doobie. But I would say that, um, listen, think about it. You sit down and you smoke pot. And look, every, everyone in the world has smoked pot. Okay? I've smoked pot. There you go. There's my confession for you. I've done it. I don't really care if people know. Big deal. It's nothing. Uh, it's, it's one of these things that you do it and you, if you, you, you can think about things differently than you've ever thought about them before. That's one of the things that any of these drugs do. It's a plant. Yes, it's a plant, exactly. Meanwhile, the video games, um, are just, it's pure fantasy, it's pure distraction, it's, there's the fantasy. There's the moving out of reality. And there's the addiction. That's the truly addictive thing. So, yes, I totally agree with you. I was so happy. And it wasn't actually for the sake of uh, marijuana that I was happy about what Colorado and Washington did. I was actually much more happy just for the fact that they were able to defy federal authority, federal government in Washington, D.C. And uh, I, I hope and pray that they're going to be able to make this stick. Uh, my my fear is that Washington D.C. Uh, at some point, whether in the current administration or a future one, might decide to strike back and to reassert federal authority over that. You know, the real question is who's got the authority? Is it the states or the feds? And um, I don't really know how that'll play out. But I'm absolutely. I think we need to have the, all of the states in this country to assert their independence as much as possible. I remember, I usually keep my opinions to myself, but back in 1997, when I moved to Arizona, I remember I went to a social gathering, and I was looking, this house, the foothills, looking down at the city at night, and next to me was a former CIA agent or FBI agent, I don't remember, yeah. but she had a few, drink, a few drinks, and she said to me, hi, my name is so-and-so, do you see those lights? She said to me, 50% of this economy is because of drugs. The government is involved, and that's why the, the economy keeps going, and that's why there's a monopoly, and that's why the price of drugs is so high. Yes. One day, when it's legalized, we will all benefit from that. Well, that's interesting. Uh, we mentioned Catherine Austin Fitz earlier. I, I brought her up. I had a conversation with her uh, on one occasion, I don't know, five years ago or more, and I was, I was bitching about uh, drugs being illegal. I said, you know, damn it. Why don't they just legalize every single damn drug? I mean, I'm just sick of this. 
criminalizing this. Let people do what they want, is what I said. Consenting adults. Absolutely. So she said, well, look, Rich, I don't disagree with you, but you must realize that if that's the case, that would cause a banking collapse. I said, okay, now we're getting into some stuff. So please explain to me how that would happen. And she said, well, it's simple. You know, uh, let's say that uh, you're a Mexican drug lord. We had just been talking about uh, Raul Salinas, who's a drug lord in Mexico back in 2000 or 2001, over $100 million of his was stopped. Oh, Salinas, wasn't that the ex-president? He was the brother of Carlos Salinas. Oh, that's right, the brother of Carlos Carlos Salinas right. was the president of Mexico, and his yeah. brother Raul Salinas was this at-large, massively wealthy drug Indeed. dealer. So $114 million belonging to Raul Salinas actually had been stopped at the Chase Bank of New York on its way to some, I don't know, Cayman Islands or Swiss bank account, whatever. As it was very embarrassing in the Chase Bank spokes talking head person said uh, well it's a very good thing that we have procedures in place to stop these irregular transfers of funds blah 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 and I'm thinking really Raul Salinas is some is some idiot who has no idea that his money is going to be stopped on his way through Chase how many times do you think he's done this before all right so in this case it got stopped someone ratted out the operation they're probably dead now anyway the, the point is talking with Catherine about drugs, she says, let's say you're a Mexican drug dealer and I'm the Chase Bank of New York. You have a lot of customers that you could go to who would clean up your money for you. I'm only one possible one. I'm only one. So you go to me and I get a financing fee. Uh, maybe it's 5%, maybe it's 10%, whatever. And I, so I get that. And then you get the rest of your money and it's nice and cleaned up. It's laundered. She said, listen, that's how all of these banks operate. And it's not just banks, it's government agencies. Everyone wants this money. I mentioned petroleum being one of the largest industries in the world, but we don't really know if it is because the narcotic trafficking money is all unvouchered, it's all undocumented, but it's massive. Everyone wants it. Her point is simply that drug money washes through the veins of the global economy, just like blood. And if you were to make it legal... A lot of those agencies that are profiting, the banks particularly. Jails? Yes, would, would not benefit. And there would be actually a, almost like a kind of a collapse among certain elements of the economy. O overall, it would be good for us, obviously, to legalize it so that you don't criminalize us. But, you know, it's in their interest to keep it illegal and they, they smack you over the head with a stick, you know, to keep you in fear, saying, well, it's good for you. Don't do drugs. Meanwhile, they keep it criminalized, and they're all making their money very happy with it. Absolutely. And, uh, Did we do two hours? Pardon? Did we just do two hours? Oh, okay, sorry. No, no, no. We, we still have our second segment to go so sorry. at another time. We have four minutes left. Um, <laughs> see, I lost track of time. Two, we, can, we can explore all this. See, when, 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 when Rich and I discuss, we can discuss at 11. We can discuss oh, yeah. everything. Um, we deal with it all. Three minutes left. Uh, Richard, what's, what's the name of the new book that's coming out? Yes, and what yes. are you working on? I, I, and I really, I think, I mean, it's, it's kind of an introductory book, so I don't know if it will excite everyone, but I can tell you, it's, it's a great read. I'm really excited about it. It's called UFOs for the 21st Century Mind. Um, and really, it's, it's a sophisticated, lively introduction to the topic. If you've never read a book on UFOs before, 
I really believe this is the book for you. And even if you've read many books on UFOs before, I have a feeling you'll find it very engaging and unique in many ways that you hadn't thought about. It's a way to reconfigure this whole field to get a, a good assessment of what matters, what do we need to be focusing on to move ahead in this very, very difficult and great mystery in the years to come in, in what is really a new century and a new era. When is it coming out? Um, I'm thinking three months from now is a safe bet, so we're in at the end of February, um, May, May of 2013. Excellent. If you have read Richard Dolan's work, you know that this is going to be another stellar, stellar book, in, and I'm always looking forward to, to, to reading your new research. But folks, don't go anywhere. We have segment two coming. Uh, Richard will be speaking tomorrow, so I'm looking forward to, to watching that uh, lecture. And I'm also looking forward to segment two because you don't know what's coming. <laughs> Rich and I discuss anything can happen. What's your website, Richard? Keyholepublishing.com. Just like looking through a keyhole, keyholepublishing.com. Mr. Richard Dolan. This is Mel Fabric as you're listening or watching Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, VeritasRadio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy.
This is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.